So what we'll do is um, we'll, I will open the floor for questions in a little while, but um, first, first of all, we'd just like to sort of hear from you about the, the movie, really. And it, it was shot a little while ago. It's up for a BAFTA for best film, best cinematography. So we so wish in you... the last <laughs> last fifteen. There's we another, wish you. There's, there's another, another voting yeah, soon, yeah, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, but we this week, yeah. wish you luck for that. Good, so, thank um, you. <laughs> so the the movie, the script came through the door. Yes, it's, it, it's a film that um, uh, directed by Lone Scherfig, who's Danish. And uh, I knew the producer very well, Finola Dwyer, because we did uh, a thing called Tsunami in Thailand beforehand, which was a two-part HBO film and uh, with, with a director friend of ours. And uh, her partner is married to Nick Hornby, who wrote the screenplay. So... Um, she kindly gave it to me, and I read it and sort of loved it. You know, it, it's a. She wanted somebody who had lived that time in London, and because the, the uh, director was Danish, she um, could only interpret her vision of London in Denmark at that time. Whereas um, Andrew McAlpine, who did the piano and lots of other uh, films. Um, and myself both lived at that time. So we tried to make a film that had, uh, that evoked the period, not a film that was in your face period. So not like the boat that rocked or something like that, where you're constantly reasserting the fact that you're, you're in 1961. And it was a bit, an interesting period because it, it's the end of the 50s, early 60s, which, um, which is in between. Um, the uh, you know it's at the end of post-war and before Technicolor and and the whole psychedelia, so right bang in the middle. But it was a moment where it was the beginning of everything changing for men and women, and it was huge. I mean, it's not that far long ago, but you know, homosexuality was illegal then. You know, there's lots of things that now we take for granted that at the, you know, in those days just didn't exist. So a little bit of the anti-Semitism or a little bit of the racism there was very much part of life then, you know. And hopefully that's all changed now, but, you know, th there was part of that. And it's a film which, um, uh, you know, was shot in seven weeks. Um, seven weeks for quite little, four million for a film. Four million is, is, is a, not a lot. Um, you know, when you consider that every where you are in any street, it has to be period, and you have to evoke the period, and so often, you know, you can't pan left, you can't pan right, you can only look down one angle to get um, to get the shots. So difficult for that, and you know, I think the thing is, and I'll talk about as a cinematographer, but you know, the thing is, there are three people that are really vital for a cinematographer. Obviously the director that allows you to, to shoot things well and will take the time for, you, for it to look good. The production designer that will build the sets and create a whole bunch of things within the set that you're shooting so that it is both period but also looks beautiful. And the editor, because I like to use two cameras. A lot of cameramen don't like using two cameras, but I have a system in which I use two cameras, which I can light very, I think, well with two cameras, but also I get a huge amount of material fast. And you can intercut, as an editor, between these two, the front-on shot and a 90-degree shot from the side, which is the longer lens shot, on, you can do what's called action cuts. You know, if somebody scratches their noses, they'll scratch their noses on both cameras, so you can cut on any action because the continuity is always right and is always correct. And the big problem now for cinematographers is not just knowing how to light well, but being able to do it in the time available. And so, I mean, the, the thing to look at uh, and to, uh, to see when you accept a job is the schedule. How, much, how many pages you have to uh, shoot in one day to get the day and to achieve 
Now, in this film, for instance, there's one... I know this because I've just done... I just did a chat yesterday at BAFTA. Uh, the, uh, there's Mornington Crescent, which is that sort of crescent where we're looking inside the car and they're, walk, and they're driving towards the, the house where black people were staying outside waiting to be taken upstairs to the thing. On that day, on one day, we had to shoot. So she had to shoot with an A-frame, with a camera, looking inside a car, through the whole scene inside the car, then take, take the, the car off the A-frame and, and drive the car down the street. It arrives on the location, again shooting that, looking through the windscreen, and then looking at all the reflections in the glass, then looking at the, uh, the black family, then looking at the, the woman up in the, in the, in, in the flat above. And, um, and then change locations. Then go to Regent's Park, where you had to have a crane shot, where your car's coming towards you, and then they come out, and then they have this conversation about, it's just at the time when they're rowing, and they've just stolen this map. And, you know, it's a two-hand held with two cameras, and you're shooting that. And then there's a whole scene at night when the car drives off, and also there's a, a scene outside the, the car at night as well. And this is all in one day's... Shoot, and you still don't want to compromise. You still want it to look good, and you still want to having spoken to the director endlessly beforehand in prep time and gone through all the scenes. You still want to not lose any of those ideas, those reflections of glass, where you can you can you can shoot at the face and and you you can play with the focus either on the face or on the reflection, and you know so it becomes something which is more dreamlike. You want to get all that stuff. And the, the difficulty and the, the, the difficulty nowadays is to be able to do it in the time available. And that, that's what, you know, I'm training myself to do and I'm making mistakes, but I'm, you know, I'm trying to get that working as much as I can. And um, what else? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, um, but there was when when you first get a script. What sort of you know when you read a script? What 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 is it that appeals? Did this script appeal straight away? Did you do you see something in it or? Well, Nick Hornby, you... that's great because it was funny. You know, there's quite a lot of humour in it. Mm -hmm. um, Lone Traffic has done a lot of good films and won lots of awards for the films. She's very good in characterisation. She's very good at telling stories. She knows how to in her own way, from a Danish point of view, which is interesting, she likes to tell stories very simply and have a really beautiful way of actually describing stories and, and, and developing characters. And all the characters there are pretty well developed. You all know who they, who they are and what sort of people they are and things. And, um, and the fact that it was set in a, in a time that I knew quite well. And, uh, you know, a good cast. So... Going back to that time that you were growing up in London and growing up and, you know, if we just backtrack on a little bit of your career and what you bring to the film, you you were really interested in, some, in photography from school and you, came yeah. in, and you went to art school. Yeah. And... Not conventionally, so I'm not a conventional guy that's done, you know, clapper loading and... And focus pulling, and you know, become an operator, and then light. No, I was I was a sculptor for a long time, and um, but I couldn't, I didn't manage to sell a lot of my sculptures. <laughs> so it was really, uh, and I had twins. Suddenly, I had twins, and I had to earn some money. But I had really, I had really um, done a lot of work in photography. I often assisted photographers. I've often gone to. Um, <coughs> galleries and looked at photographs and paintings um, you know being a sculptor you do you do you, you sculpt and very much my way of lighting is a sculptural way of lighting where you just put one thing after another and you just sort of accumulate the lighting and and wrap it around when you need it and you say well no you don't need it now and now I've got to do things as simply as possible but quite quickly and you know the process of lighting and and looking at faces and perspective you know because I'm a sculptor you know in the here for instance in the in the um, in the flat I like I always try and find way depth and when you can see from one room to the other room and also the staircase at the same time so there's doors frames within frames mm. uh, always interests me mm. you know and so what there isn't anymore there's no right or wrong way of lighting or there's no right or I mean I'm just uh, I often go to this 
this um, festival in called Camry Marsh in Poland, where you know there are seven cinematographers and we're all judging films uh, during the festival, and we're all professional cinematographers and we all are reasonably successful, and we all have a different idea about what is beautiful, mm. and so. I said, well, that was, that was sensational. That was fantastic. It had so much life in it. It was so beautifully, so beautifully composed. And the guy said, no, I thought it was hideous. It was horrible. <laughs> so there's no, there's no real, real right or wrong. There's only what you think is right and, or wrong. It's only what you decide through looking at a lot of photographs, through looking at painting, through looking at films. You decide what is um, what you want to say with images. And, uh, you know, what, um, you know, stills, are still photographs, the best of the still photographs, the one that encapsulates in one photograph the moment, the time, the politics of the moment, the whatever it is. And, in effect, in any storytelling things, we have to, over 90 minutes, capture the moment, the time, and the politics between the people. And there's the same things. We have to do that. And I, to me, for me, is to, to do it truthfully. So that, you know, you, you show off, you know, the 1950s and the 60s and the people of that time in as true a way as possible. That's what interests me. But, you know, there'll be another camera next door to me who'd say, no, I don't want to do that. I want to stylize it and I want to do it this way, do it in a completely different way. And that's fine. And there's no right or wrong. And working with the production designer, how did that? How does that? Well, that's it's vital. It's absolutely vital. And now I've just done another film with him. Um, it's called Made in Dagnum, which is set in 1968, shot in an incredibly different way. I mean, completely different way. And um, he's so good because he's, you know, the production designer has to first of all, you know, understand the period and things like that, so that you know, if you have sets. You don't have sets of furniture of 1961 in it. You have sets with furniture of 1940, 1955, 1948, and some of 1961. You have a mixture of things, but that's what reality is. So he's very good at that. And you always find, you know, in comp compositionally, you always find, you know, star, you know, clocks and things like that that you can, you can use to use. And things. So you need your... You can't make a really good-looking film if your production design is not very good and not very visual and not understand lighting and composition. You have to have a fantastic... And um, so our relationship now, on two occasions now, has worked out very well. Mm. And it's, it's makes a lot of difference. You know, in this other film, which you haven't seen, um, we needed to... There were two club scenes. I persuaded... Oh, no, in this film, actually. No, in this film. The, the, the club scene in Walthamstow um, was meant to be an ordinary club scene. If you read the script, it has nothing to do with dog racing or anything like that. But my father used to take me to the dog racing when I was young. And I said, well, that's where a lot of the crims used to go to. It was really, you know, quite, it's quite fun. It's, it's a bright part of the film. Get a bit of energy and a bit of fun and a bit of excitement. So why don't, why don't we do it there? And there was a club there which was called Jackie Shan or something like that, but it was disused. It wasn't, it wasn't used. I mean, it was, the walls were like this, pitch black, <laughs> nothing. I mean, there was nothing at all. There's nothing, nothing reflections, nothing. So that, where you saw in that club, by the thing, was horrific. But the production designer was so good that he put all these mirrored tiles everywhere and he put all sorts of things and put lights everywhere so you could see in the distance. And the ceiling was very low and I built a box like... Thing, which was a very simple thing with, with ordinary bear bulbs with different gel colours there on a, on a dimmer, you know, chasing mm -hmm. board, you know, so that it looked like a disco when they're dancing and things like that. And from absolutely nothing, something that is not more beautiful than this room, <laughs> it was great. It worked very well because you had actually two things. You had, the, you know, the essence of a, of a club, which you, you see, and, but also you've got the production value of having a whole um, um, dog track behind. So as they're standing there, there's a huge dog track. That would cost a fortune normally. So often in low budgets, you try and find locations that, you know, you get fantastic production value. And it's cost you nothing. I mean, it, you know, maybe it costs 500 quid to keep the lights on. It was, you know, for a big film, wasn't much. Mm. It wasn't a big deal. Mm. 
but it worked. And that's because the production designer was so clever in getting all this reflective things and it wasn't absorbing all the light that we had. Mm. There was always reflections, there was always ways of using it. So between the cinematographer production design, it's a very, very important relationship. Mm. Mm. Was the interior of the house a set or was that a location? That was a set. That was a set. The exterior obviously wasn't. And, uh, yeah, no, that was the only set. Mm. Yeah. So when on, on, the sh- on, on the shoot, and you've obviously worked with the production designer for a couple of weeks beforehand. You oh, a month, a, a good of, month, yeah. A couple of months. For no, a month, a month, month, month prep, yeah. And then you, you turn up on the day. <laughs> and how, do you, how would you like to work with directors on the day? Do you, have you done a lot of prep on the storyboarding? Or well, no, because, because she was, uh, you know, Danish. Um, I needed to get into her head to find out how she wanted to do it yeah. and what she wanted. And I think she also was interested to, to get feedback from me to mm. find out whether we agreed on things or not. And um, so I would, like I do on every project, spend two or three weeks, mm. you know, not, not paid, I just do it because that's what I like to do. And, and we go through the whole script and mm. make notes. And mm. I would have already gone through the script and said, well, it would be nice in that Mornington Crescent scene to, to use the reflection idea. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Do you think it's a great idea or not a good idea? And she thought, yeah, no, let's do that. That looks lovely. That would be very, very nice. Let's do that. Right. And then you write it all down. And you write down all the things that you'd really love to do. Yeah. And some things you can do and some things you can't because of lack of time and all sorts of things, you know. But, but if you've done that with a director, at least you've got the premise of of knowing what the scenes are all about. Mm. And if you want to change anything, or if um, or you haven't got enough time, you have to do it in one shot, you know the decision process that you need to make mm. to get the same essence of that scene mm. in a different way. Mm. So when, when on the morning of the shooting, do, you, do the rehearsals happen on the set or the location? Or how, how do you actually start to, to work in terms of the camera angles or how you're going to think about your lighting? Yeah, what happens is that the, um, the, the, the director has all the characters. You know roughly where, you know, where you are and, and, and the set. Mm. And if it's a big set, mm. um, you sort of slightly pre... I mean, it, it depends. You know, because for instance, the Café de Paris was a nightmare because... <laughs> We were the day before. Again, it's this thing of scheduling. The day before, we were on the countryside in the middle of nowhere. Mm. So the first assistant expected us to turn up that morning, Mm. light a pretty extensive Mm. scene inside a club with a singer and them, and they do conversation around a table. (coughs) On the same day as you shoot the thing. Is it possible? I mean, you can do it, but it, you know, you're just doing it so badly. Mm. So, of course, the day before, I went with a gaffer and some other electricians and stayed till three o'clock in the morning to pre-light this thing. So I had to guess in advance roughly what, how the whole thing would work. Mm. You've got to make a, a value judgment of, well, you know, they're, they're on a table. So if you put the table here, we can do a track and so, so we can show the whole of the set, mm-hmm. and then it's all... Intercuts, and we use two cameras, mm. and we light it in such a way that we can use two cameras. You know, we bounce the light on the f- on the table, so it's all soft light coming up, and it's a bit more glam. You know, and it's mm. these two different worlds: the Twickenham world and the and the uh, and her world as she goes round goes into London. So you want to have a glam world and a, and a slightly more down world, and so that would make it all nice and light and and pretty and things like that. And it's reasonably easy to do. <coughs> So in that occasion, you know, I had to preempt it. And I phoned up low and I said, look, do you mind? But, I'm, you know, I'm here on my own here, but can we do that? And then, and then if you want to replace the table somewhere, it's really a, just a placement of a table. It's not a big deal. And then we replaced the table when we did the close-ups so there were more depth in the background. And, uh, and that was pre-organized as well. So we lit some, put some lights above in two different places so that we got more depth for... Thing. So always trying to get as much as you can out of any one scene mm. and try and compromise as little as possible. Mm. But, you know, th- there will be compromises, whatever happens. You know, you can't avoid it. Mm. But you like camera operating yourself, you... Yeah. That's... Yeah. Well, I think, personally, I think that... Um, 
cinematography is, um, I don't know what the percentage is, but I mean, the, let's say 80% or 75% is composition and 20 to 25% is lighting. I think if you have, you can have an absolutely beautiful film, beautifully composed, but averagely lit or shot outside, but the composition is sensational, it makes it a beautiful film. But you can't really have a beautifully lit film that's badly composed. It's a bad, it's a bad looking film, if that's the case. So composition is absolutely imperative, that's for me. <coughs> But, you know, everybody's got a different view, you know, and a lot of you guys might say, no, that's rubbish. And there's no right or wrong. But, yeah. but you have to make some sort of decisions when you, when you film. You've got to make decisions of that's what you think is important. So how does, how does it work for you with the director about making those sort of decisions about the look of the film and making that composition? Do you use paintings, photos, you know? What's yeah, the, you know, um, this film we had... Uh, I am a great lover of the L-shaped room. Not so much, because it's black and white, but not so much for the lighting or even the composition, but the essence of mm. it. You know, the essence of the film. And there's, you know, a, a, a certain thing about that period is that people were, it seems, and maybe I'm wrong, but it, it seems less cynical. Mm. They were more honest and sort of naive mm. in many ways. And there's a, a naivety and things like that we talked about and said, well, you know, maybe in the way we shoot it and the way that people are and the way they react to each other there's a certain naivety the father's a bit naive and they're all a bit you know it's not quite as sophisticated as it is today yeah so that in that film for instance um there's a sense of that mm. and it's quite a political film as well which is about the period and how people the relationships between people in that period which is interesting as well and then uh, lots of photographs, you know, and gone to the, you know, photographic galleries and picked up photographs and, and images and, 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 you know, compositional styles and, you know, all that stuff, you know. And, and also the, the production designer and me would show off his drawings of, of a whole bunch of stuff. And that in itself, you know, gives you also, well, that'd be nice to be shooting this way and looking this way and just doing that and whatever. Um, um, and then, and then that whole thing of um, having to get the schedule. So you have to start you thinking about using two cameras and how do you light for two cameras well, uh, which you can very well, and how do you use two cameras so that um, so it works within the film? And you know, mm. so you go through that mm. process as well. And just change the lenses on all these cameras. Never, never put two cameras next door to each other. Never put them on top of each other because there's always one that's compromised. You can't, you can't have two perfect cameras side by side. Well, you can, but it, it, it's difficult. I think it's pretty impossible. So you always go 90 degrees, and then you can light for 90 degrees quite easily. And also, you can change lenses. You can have wide, <laughs> wide lens here and a close up there, and vice versa, and change them around like that. And they're all intercutable. And, and it's, it's a way to go. And also, it's, you know, you get fantastic amount of footage. Good footage. Um, Not many DOPs seem to like the two. Light to light. No, you know, you talk to, you know, Roger Deakins, who's, the, you know, the top guy in the world, and he was a never in a million years would he do that. But, you know, I'm sure he has done it, uh, but he doesn't like to do it. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't like doing it. Yeah. And most yeah. cameramen don't. Mm. I, just, I just really like it. I just yeah. think that... And this, this new film I've just done, um, uh, I put two zooms on. There was a time when no cameraman would ever put a zoom on. And the reason for that is because zooms were inferior to prime lenses. Now that's not the case anymore. Now zoom lenses are as good as prime lenses. And often you can't tell the difference between a long lens zoom and a prime, long lens prime. You can't tell the difference. Well, there's very, very slight difference, very, very little. So what it does is that it, it frees you up a little bit. One, it's faster, and it frees you up. And so, again, I did this thing with two cameras on, on two tracks like this at 90 degrees, and there were eight women in a factory. And I, I use as an example of the sort of film it would be, this film called Paul Cow, which is a Ken Loach film, 
Very, very beautiful. If you haven't seen it, really go and see it. It's a sensational film. And what it is, is it has a real feel of, of reality. You feel that you're there. You feel that the people are there. And there's something about starting to think in terms of actually not photographing things so that things are perfect. You actually go for the accident. You go for the imperfection. And out of imperfection, there's beauty and magic. Much more than there is if you've got an absolute perfect, boring frame with a beautifully lit thing. Suddenly, the life of it has gone. And this is just for this film, and I might not think this in the next film I do after that, but for this film, I thought, let's go for accidents. Let's go for... It's a nightmare for the focus pillar, because he, do, he doesn't really know who you're on. Um, and he, 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 he's looking at the monitors. Oh, and then, but he, he catches up with you sooner or later. And even if you just... There's a bit of breathing between, you know, getting into focus and things like that. It's quite beautiful. There's, there's a beauty in that. And if, if you get a good editor who knows how to use it, it just gives you a film which has life, real life, mm. which is interesting. And that's completely different from this film. So on every film you do, the essence is to pre-visualise and work out what you want to get out of it and what sort of approach you want on it. Has any, do indicate if you've got any questions as we go. So, yes, the first straight up is a question. Um, I'm very interested in using two cameras, and you partially answered the question by saying how many cinematographers actually do it. Um, but is your prime objective to get more footage, which you've talked about, or is it to do things at a quicker pace? And what's the film ratio you're using when you're using two cameras? Because there's obviously a greater expense in it, but is that offset by the fact you can do it more quickly? Well, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, don't know. <laughs> I, don't, you know I think that, you know, it's obviously more expensive, undoubtedly more expensive. I mean, the advantages of those sort of things that I said, that, you know, you're covering, you know, if you do that, and it's a, it's a two-hander, two people talking to each other, you're doing that, so you've got a two-shot at the beginning and, and, and a close-up over the shoulder here. There are two things that happen here, is that this camera here, which is on a long lens, things like that, there are moments sometimes in scenes that are just magical. Again, this thing of it being a little bit, you know, a, a bit of an accident. They're magical. You know, uh, uh, somebody turns and are reflective and they're brand big close-up on, on, on their nose or whatever it might be. But there's something a bit magical. You would never, ever, ever in a million years put a camera there for the whole scene just for those little moments. But because you've, you know, you've got two cameras, you get those little magic moments. Also, because you're changing lenses all the time, you've got a huge variety of ways of cutting um, between. And also, you save on one setup. Because all you have to do once you've done that is done... You might not have to, but, I mean, you do a reverse on the person that you haven't shot on. You know, usually that's what you do. That's the only thing you do. If you do cameras side by side... You can't really intercut between them very well. And I don't know why people do that. You know, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, but you can't really intercut between them. So you need to do two cameras on both sides to make it work. And so by that stage, you've, got, you've added an extra shot and also they don't cut very well between each other. In terms of... No, it's a question of persuading the producer to, uh, to go with it. And, you know, if you've got a film that's seven weeks, like all these films, it's only just possible to do it really well. You know, you, you all have films that are five weeks and four weeks, and we've all shot them for, the, for less. Um, but uh, there's a certain amount, 90 minutes, there's a certain amount of pages you can do per day, unless the people are just sitting in their chairs and not moving very much. Um, there's a certain amount you can do well, filmically well. Um, so it forces you, and it forces you to, do, to argue with the producer that we do need two cameras. And on this last film, we had them all, the, we had the camera, but I was fighting every day for the second cameraman. And they would never say yes, we, we haven't got it in the budget, we never schedule for it. But, you know, realising how much footage we were getting and how much good footage we were getting, it just made sense. And in the end, it's funny how it happens, they always find the money from somewhere. <laughs> I never understand. Suddenly there's no money at all at the beginning. And by the end of it, he said, do you want a crane? Oh, yeah, have a crane. Have this, oh, yeah, whatever you want. And because they're all terrified. 
they're terrified. All these production managers and line producers are terrified at the beginning that if you spend the same amount as you do when you first arrive, and I'm saying, well, I want a crane and two cameras and this and the other, they say, oh, my God, we'll never be able to, to film the, the film. But by having those two cameras, you're faster and you get many more scenes and you get your days. And that is much cheaper than not getting your day. That's for sure. Could you say a little bit about working with your gaffer? You, how, how do you... Do you have the same gaffer all the time? Well, because I operate, uh, yeah, I try... You know, the thing is to have a family, you know, to work with a family so that everybody respects each other and everybody gets given challenges. That's what I do. I give all my people challenges to do things that is above mm. what their real job mm. is. Mm. So the loader, I'll tell him to set up a camera over there and get the right lens on and, and, and do a little track there and make sure that the, there's nothing, uh, nothing in the field of view that would be embarrassing for me once I get onto the thing. Mm -hmm. And the focus puller, I get, you know, I get everybody to do things right. so that everybody's involved. And also, when you have very little money and you need to split your crew up, I can confidently say that my loader can focus pull, and he can go off there, and he'll, don't worry about it, he'll be able to focus pull. And the, my, my focus puller can operate that camera over there, don't worry, he'll be able to do it because he's done all that. So everybody does the job above. Mm -hmm. <coughs> also, it's a bit more fun. You're not completely, you know, closeted into this, this one way of, of, of filming and thing. So ideally, you have a, a crew that you work with all the time, and, you know, some, some jobs, there's not much money and they complain about that. And other jobs, they have a bit more money. But overall, you know, the crew that I've had, I've done 28 movies with. Mm. So they're happy, you know, they're, they're working. <laughs> <laughs> they're working. Be a great story about when you started as a cup loader. Oh, no. <laughs> I was the worst assistant you could possibly be. It was the first day I was on Moonraker. And... Um, these thousand foot rails. Nobody had told me that you can't pick up a thousand foot rail from the outside. <laughs> so I was in the dark room. It was the first job, the first thing I did, I sort of conned this man into letting me be the, focus, the uh, loader and pretended that I knew exactly what I was doing. And I picked up this thing and the whole of the inside of the, of the, of the film went... <laughs> And I, could, I was just watching it. I, there was nothing I could do about it. I just couldn't stop it. It wouldn't stop. And eventually, boom, it was all there. And I quickly got a black bag and I buried it in Pinewood. <laughs> and spent the rest of my time trying to work out short ends. Like, I mean, if I make 150 foot short ends, I've only got 900 to go before I make them. <laughs> so no, I wasn't a very good um, loader. It makes a good story. It makes a good story. <laughs> but just coming back to working with your gaffer, because when you, when you are camera operating as well, working with a gaffer is, is really essential, isn't it, in that relationship about... Yeah, you know, and you want somebody who will say, oh, do you think I should... Isn't it a bit bright over there? Yeah. And because, you're, you know, you're looking at everything and you're, you're yeah. tracking and you're... Yeah. There. And you, you need somebody who's into it mm. as much as you are and will look after you. Mm. Absolutely imperative. Absolutely imperative. And actually, the gaffer on this had never done a film before. Mm. And I'd never worked with him before. But what I had done is some commercials with him. And he, you could tell, had an incredible eye. He was incredibly sensitive. He really, really understood lighting. He really loved lighting and understood it. And I said, and I think what, if he has a failing, is that he's not very good at organising teams. But in terms of actual lighting and knowing how to light and mm. what, what frames to put in front and flags and, mm. and how to wrap the lights around, you know, it's, it, it was fantastic, sensational. And you want somebody as sensitive as that and you want somebody who's, who loves it and looks after you and it, because it's, that's our job and that's what we love doing. And you want somebody who's as obsessed about it as you are. And it's very rare to find them. Mm. So, you know, I mean, what he has to learn is, is how to slightly bully a whole team and telling them, to do what they want, it's, it's difficult that. Mm. You know, especially if it's a low budget and they say, you know, and the producer said, no, you can, do, you can only have four electricians. Mm. But I need eight. Mm. Well, you can only have four. Mm. And then you say, you say, okay, I'll have four. And if you're somebody who's a bit older, 
you can fight you know, that battle a mm. bit more easily. Uh, he was young and he's a young boy, so you know he found it difficult to fight that. But he'll learn, and he'll find a way of doing it. And but I mean, in terms of an eye mm. and a way of lighting, you know, I'm keeping on telling him that he's become he should become a cameraman mm. because he's he's apps he's fallen into it like you know. It's not a usual to, route in the UK, is it? In the States, it's a, it's a more familiar route to go from being... I don't think there's you know, a usual route. I mean, there might be a not usual route, but I don't, you know, I don't think that's important. Mm. I think you've either got the flair, you've either got the talent, you've either got the eye, and um, what, wherever you... I mean, I was a sculptor, you know, that's not usual either. You know, everybody, you know, if, if that's what you really want and you discover it, that's a hard bit, is mm. knowing what you want. Mm. And, um, and and then and then deciding to do it, and that's that's always a tough bit. And you're all here. I mean, I suppose you're all writers, and some of you are cinematographers, some are directors, some are production designers, and things like that. And you're making up your mind which ones you want to do. What's what's going to really enthrall you and make you feel uh, uh, that you're using your talent at at its best. And uh, now's the time to find out what really really gets you your you know your juices going. I'd suggest camera work. (laughs) (laughs) Just coming to specifics of camera work, in terms of, we're often asked about exposure, and I know it creates a lot of anxiety for a lot of people who haven't got a long history in in photography, but just how how do you think about exposure, and what, how do you, what do you use? Well, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. The thing is about exposure. What what it is is well, like you take a photograph in a stills camera. You know what you what what you have to work out is your relationship between the the very dark and the very light, mm. and the relationship between them, and how they if you were to if you were to darken your image, how the whole thing would darken relative to each other. Mm. That is what is important. You could be two stops out. Mm. And, uh, and but your relationship between the very light and the dark and the midtones in between are absolutely right. So you bring it up or down, and it'll go up or down, inc- incremental or whatever the word is. Uh, uh, you know, in in the perfect ratio mm-hmm. with each other. Mm-hmm. So your eye is about what you, your ph- photography is about that, and you might want a very contrasty image where you have a very harsh light mm. and it's very dark and there's not very much in between well then you won't have very much to go up and down in because mm. you haven't got enough in between but you know uh, again pre-visualizing knowing what you want and things like that the actual stop is sort of irrelevant mm. I mean you, you, you take a stop for the key light mm-hmm. and then the rest has to be by eye I mean, you can start doing pointing everything like that, but sometimes you'll surprise yourself that, oh, my God, that's 15 stops off. You know, it's 15 stops far too bright. There's a film called um, Saving Grace I did, and um, in, the, in the film it's about um, Brenda Blething growing dope plants in Cornwall, and she had these lights, and one of the jokes in, the, in, 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 this, in, this, in this place in this greenhouse was that she'd turn on the lights and it was so bright, this thing, that you couldn't see anything. So I lit this scene, so it was 15 stops overexposed. 15 stops. So she switched the lights on, and it's 15 stops overexposed. And uh, it'll work brilliantly, very good. Went to the Tele Sydney the next day, and uh, the Tele Sydney operator said, Look, let's, uh, let me show you something. So he grabbed the, the dials and went, and it was perfect. It's as if it was not overexposed at all. It was absolutely perfect. So when you've got stocks, and I'm talking about really 400 ASA stock, which has a great latitude, that has a 12 to 14 stop latitude, you know, you know the, the, the actual stop you put it on it doesn't really matter too much. You know, you obviously don't want to get it wrong all the time, but, you know, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a ratio between the light and the dark, which is the important bit. It's that ratio that's important. It's not really um, the stop you put. You know, and some cameramen say, oh, it's five, six, then one, eighth. You know, it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference. Any other questions as we go? Yes. 
I want to hear more about how you negotiate with the production when you need things. For instance, this film, it took seven weeks to shoot. Um, maybe that's not enough, and maybe you're put in situations where they're basically um, compromising the quality of your work out of the film because they're simply not giving you enough tools to do what you need to do. And so what do you do when you find yourselves in, situ- in situations like that? Well, the, what you do is you have to find solutions. You have to, if, you know, you have to also look and, and be honest with yourself that producers have a certain amount of money. And if they don't have enough money, I mean, they would all say, let's do it for eight weeks, let's do it for nine weeks. If they had enough money, there's no reason why not, apart uh, from the fact they don't have enough money. So if the scenes are huge and, you know, the place is massive and it would take twice as many actors um, and light, uh, electricians and lights to light the thing, then you have to go to the producer and the director and say, look, guys, we're going to have to, you know, make this a smaller scene. We're going to have to go in that corner over there. But going in that corner over there is so ugly, I really wouldn't suggest it. Let's do something else. Let's find another location. Let's find something that we can do and that does work well. And it still has the essence of what the scene's about. And you don't lose that. You don't want to lose that. You don't want to, if it's a well-written script, of course. You know, if it's a well-written script, but you can't quite do this scene, it's far too, you know, the Grand Central Station, they're right in the middle, you can't do it. But there might be other stations that will still give the same atmosphere and or, you know, there are ways of cutting around it and there are little cuts and the effects of cutting in a certain way and things like that will give the same element of that scene but it wasn't written that way. You've just got to figure out ways of, of getting around the problem. And, you know, sometimes that's what you've got to do. You can't just say, I want more money. And I can't do it like this. I've got to have more money. Because that's, you know, that doesn't help you and doesn't get you anywhere either. Yeah, uh, I just noticed something which is quite interesting. I mean, inside the car in the film, uh, some of the scenes I noticed, like, uh, you have, like, sprayed uh, either, like, water. Or there's, like, a misty uh, kind of thing in the shutters. Was it, like, block off the... Uh, modern uh, no, it's, because it's a, a real old car that does the, 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 the ventilator doesn't work and so within uh, you know, you're in there I'm there the focus pull is there plus these two other actors are in there and it gets really hot in there and it suddenly it just steams up and depending on which take they, they use at the beginning of course there's no steam and by the fifth take you know it's full steamed up you know and it's as simple as that But, you know, there are things that were, you know, that didn't work in the film. You know, there are things that uh, I couldn't get round. And I'm sure that you noticed that, you know, right at the beginning, when that that rain sequence, um, the sound came out right in the middle of it. And it's it's a low-budget film. You can't get round it. Uh, you know, I said before, you know, I said in the morning, I said, today the sun's going to come out. I know it's told me there. <laughs> the meteoric thing said the sun's going to come out. And we're doing this huge scene with quad bikes, rain machines, and and all, 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 all that to put together. It's very expensive. Can we not do it another day when it's going to be a grey day? All day. No, we've got to do it. It's absolutely imperative to do it now. Tough, the actors have been booked. Oh, no, no, no. Too bad. So there you go. So you've got a scene in which halfway through the day, you've shot all the morning and it's perfectly grey. Suddenly it gets sun in. She's walking with the, this car going like this, with, with the sun in it. And so then you phone up the editor and, uh, and you get him on set and you say, right, this is what we shot. We can pick roughly the, the takes that we like or the ones that we like, boom, 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 boom. And then this is when the sun comes out. What can you do to edit round this problem? What is there a shot that I could do where the sun comes out in shot or something that will indicate that, that there is a change of light? And I can't remember what we decided, but we did do whatever we did, and that was the best we could do. But, but you know, it, there are circumstances where you can't get round it, you know, and because the, there's not enough money, you know, any big production that you come back tomorrow, and we'll do it tomorrow. Or we'll do the second half of the scene tomorrow when it's grey, and, and we'll carry on doing because we're at that school, so there are lots of things to do in the school. But the rain towers are expensive, and the you know, quad bike was... You know, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that was ordered, especially for that scene, that we couldn't get again. So either we did it like that, and, 
And finally, probably it's not the end of the world, you know. The story's a story, and you're not... If you're thinking about that all the time, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I was wondering if you could speak a little about uh, the communication between uh, you and your B, camera, your B camera and just sort of how that goes down, and also with uh, communication with what the director wants. Yeah. Well, the director, obviously, I would, we would have talked about this in prep, about a lot of it, and and in the morning, once the director has done the rehearsals, I'm sitting in the background of the room while she's rehearsing with the actors and things, and then uh, she would look at, you know, me, and I'd say, OK, well, you always have one showing of of the scene once she has has decided that she likes the, the shape of it, for me, so I get my lenses up and I say, well, look, how about this? And I show her the thing, and if they sit over there, blah, blah, maybe it might be better. Do you mind if we, we take them, instead of taking them over there in front of the front-lit situation, put them back-lit against over there, but they can walk in the opposite direction? You know, so I will advise her visually. And sometimes it doesn't work, sometimes it doesn't work. So that's what you do with a director. And also, we've done all this prep beforehand. So we've talked about all the scenes and the way of shooting it, and if something changes, you do that. And then second camera, well, I again have this team of people that I work with all my life, and my second cameraman was a gaffer, was my ex-gaffer years ago. And when he was a gaffer, like I did with all my other crew, like I do with my crew now, I taught him how to use a second camera. And often when we did rock videos, things like that, I'd get him on, once we'd lit something, I'd get him on the second camera over there, and he'd shoot little bits and pieces and... He got used to it and got good at it and got brilliant at it. And eventually he left and because he wanted to do his own thing. And five years ago, he came back after having showed, you know, showed to himself that he could light commercials and do bits of it, but he wanted to do drama and he was finding it difficult to get back into drama. Came back and he said, look, I'm ready. Why don't we do some two camera jobs together? You know, I know how you light. I know you very well. I know how we, we could work together. And he's very clever and he's very creative and he's a great guy. And so he's a perfect person to have because we, we, we think alike. And, you know, often a lot of the shots in films in this film are his and not mine at all. I won't tell you which one. But <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot. So you guys are like simultaneously finding frames... Yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm the sort of boss, so I mean, I do sort of try and be in charge of it. But he will suggest like extra stuff, and you know, he'll figure out, you know, and you know, anybody in the crew can always have ideas, and the best ideas win. You know, there's not this hierarchy. When I was starting, you know, I had to have a tie, and you couldn't talk to the cameraman because uh, the cameraman, do you want his job? And you'd say, yeah, and they'd say, well, you can't have it, and. <laughs> And you can talk, and it was a very different world. Very different world. And now it's very casual. Everybody talks to each other, everybody, you know, everybody gets a chance now. I'm interested, is there a film you began to notice that changing with as you worked through the... Well, no, because I, I uh, never really, I was never in the crowd mm. of, of, you know, the, the, I mean, I certainly wasn't in the, uh, the Pinewood crowd after that. It, Thing of the film game. I was never really with that. So I used to do little independent films. There's a, a Gillis McKinnon, yes. who's a Scotsman, and uh, did a film called Small Faces up in Glasgow. About, and I worked with him constantly. And so we became friends. And we did Hideous Kinky, and we did you know, a whole bunch of films, and Trojan Eddie, and with good actors, and they were good scripts. And um, they were independent, low budget films, true storytelling films. And then I got sent, you know, after the full Monty, then I got sent off to America for a bit and did all this crap, you know. And not because, because I did full Monty, there suddenly it was always romantic comedies. I didn't want to do romantic comedies. So I did things like Shall We Dance? And the, you know, it's, it's fine. And they're very big budgets and it's good to do it and good to show to people you can do it. But actually, they're not great films. Mm. And also I had t twins and things like that, so I had to earn money, whatever happened, you know. So, um, but, you know, good film. You know, I started off, I fell in love with One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. I started off with The Deer Hunter. And I've never done a Deer Hunter or One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, and that's what I'm desperate to do. 
And, you know, hopefully one day I will do something as good and as brilliant as that, as well told as that. Mm. I mean, Deer Hunter is a sensational mm. film. I saw it the other day and I was oh, it's just, just... It's timeless, uh, isn't it? it, it who was it? Vilmos Sigmund? Yes. Who was at this Camry March? If you go to, want to go to a festival, the Camry March is for cameramen <laughs> in Poland and it's a blast. I mean, your liver will take... A huge jolt, but uh, it's it's sensational, and it's just lots of cameramen, uh, and and all sorts of people, and people from colleges and things, uh, and and all these films. And Vilmos Simon has done massive amount of very huge films, of which one is The Deer Hunter, which is my favourite film of all time. And I said to him, you know that scene where Robert De Niro walks up the mountain. And with his gun, and there's a beautiful mist, a landscape, misty landscape like that, and you go through the mist, and you get up at the top, and it's a massive landscape. And you shoot this deer, and it falls to the ground. What happened? Did you just turn up, and it just happened to be a really misty, lovely day? Or had you pre... Or did you wait until... You, five days they waited for this misty day. Five days... That is impossible. That would never happen. Mm. It doesn't matter how big a cameraman or director you are. Nobody has that possibility anymore. It just doesn't exist. You can't wait for five days for mm. the perfect weather. Mm. You just can't do it. So that's, there's a big change. And that's what the problem is. You know, there's a big change in the way films are made now. You've got to, you've got to go with what there is and figure out the best way of getting the best shots. But of course, it's magnificent. It makes the film, or that sequence of this mist, magnificent. I've got two questions. What was your what would be your advice on a good weather forecast site? Um, have you got any any particular one that you could offer? And then the other one, what, what's your choice of lens for this film, and what stock did you shoot it on? I, I don't know. I don't know about the weather. I have no idea. No, I didn't. No, no. No, I, mean, I don't know. No, the first assistant, nine times out of ten, gets, you know, and he's constantly phoning up, and then and if the production's got a lot of money, they go to the airport, and the airport tells them exactly, and then... No, I don't know. And, you know, every country has different things. You know, you can go to... You know, we were in Thailand for this tsunami film, and they got it wrong every day. I mean, every single day, they go, it was meant to be monsoon today. What happened? Uh, so you can't tell. And this, well, this, I always use 400 ASA film. I do that because, again, like the zoom lenses, like all these things, uh, film used to, you only use 100 ASA or 50 ASA film because you've got better grain than 400. Nowadays, there's very little difference. I've done lots of tests where you've got 400, uh, 400 ASA film and 200 ASA film. And there's no market, no, no real difference between the two. And not enough, certainly not enough, to uh, decide to go 200 ASA because the grain is better. It isn't. So what you have, you've got a 400 ASA stock, which has a latitude of 12 stops, which means that you, you're, that stock will be able to look into when you're in Thailand. I used to shoot it with 400 ASA in this baking heat in Thailand, because there were all these tents everywhere. And inside the tents, I couldn't light them all. I'd make some holes in some of them and things like that. Uh, I needed to see inside the tent, as well as cope with a very bright sunshine. And sometimes I'd soften the sunshine or whatever. Like that. But if you have 400 ASA stock, you have that latitude. You've got that depth of, of being able to, to see both. So it doesn't make any sense not to use that. It's got to be good. There's no difference in grain. And um, it has much better latitude. And if you don't want to use a latitude, then you don't have to. But, uh, you know, it's got it there. That's my thinking. What's your post-production need? Oh, look. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I would have talked so much if I had known you were there. Uh, oh, this was... Um, uh, this is... Clive, uh, it's Clive, Clive Noakes. So, um, and then, um, so what happens is DI. So it's a digital intermediate, which was done out of, um, JJ did it, um, 
out of a company in Wardour Street, who I forget the name of, and um, and we spent three weeks grading it, um, and uh, and from that moment on, once it's graded, then it goes to a DI, and then you know the, the trick is also to try and always get the producer to um, get some show prints off the DI, uh, the digital intermediate. So off, off the actual machine, they can do show prints. So that's the best print you do. Because after that, you have to go to Interneg and Interpos. So you got, you know, you're a couple of generations down. I mean, the film these days is, is pretty good. Um, so, you know, there's not too much. It doesn't change too much from one to the other. But nevertheless, it is definitely a bit sharper from... Um, the DR. I tell you what is interesting, which I forgot to tell you. This film was had a look about it that I wanted, and it came out of using Cook lenses, but Cook S2 lenses. They're the first or second generation S2 lenses. They're very old lenses. And what I liked about it, and what I don't like about a lot of photography now, is it's too sharp. You buy televisions and, and think, it's just too sharp. Everything is so sharp and so incredible. These lenses are have got a very quick fall off and although it is sharp you know if you do portraiture with 150mm it's just beautiful it's just, there's a velvety quality to them and I'd use these lenses for a thing called Miss Pettigrew list for a day it was 1936 and they immediately evoked a period immediately without doing anything some of the close ups here which the, the, the colouring's a bit weird it's because of the lens it, somehow it diffracted or reflected or something like that and there's, there's two or three times when there are, there's a close-up of, of uh, Peter Sarsgaard, which has a quality of that period, which is sort of quite pastely pinky face quality. Uh, but certainly the focus is a, immediately gives you a thing. So as opposed to putting a filter in front of the lens, which I'm never a great lover of, you know, you'd use the filter, I mean, use the lens to, to, to get that look. Um... So that's one thing that that created the look of this film, and obviously lighting and things like that, and then also um, the DI digital intermediate is is very handy to get you know a, a quality and a look that because film uh, if you did it chemically you couldn't change the gamma which is the midtones you can't really change that once you shot a film. But inside these suites, like telecine and all these, you can. You can change it if you want. In theory, you shouldn't have to change it because you've lit it so brilliantly and it's perfect and you don't have to don't do anything about it. But, you know, at times, you know, it's, it's handy. It's handy. So, uh, and also pastel colours and getting different colours out of, you know, basically a chemical bath is either it's warm or cool and it's light or it's dark. And you know, there's, there are mid-things, mid mid-ranges, mid-tones, mid-things that you can do with DI, which you can't do. And things like, you know, if you want to put a grad on it, but you didn't have enough time to put a shadow on the set, because it would take, you know, it, was, it would be a huge baton with some, you know, something to make it to happen. I said, I'll do it later. So it, sometimes it makes, makes the, the schedule faster, too. You know, little things that you can do quickly. Um... The, um, being the 35mm and using Deluxe, and obviously Clive Noakes is one of the best loved um, graders of the orb, lab contacts at the time. Say a little bit about your, as a DP, your relationship with, with the labs when you were shooting 35mm. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm somebody who's very loyal. I, when I was 21, decided I wanted to make films and with a mate of mine, bought, um, uh, no, borrowed a camera got some letters some, for some film and did a, a really low-budget horror movie. And it was called The Hand of Death. <laughs> Very proud of it. And, um, and he was the first guy, and I went to him and I said, look, you know, we haven't got any money, is there any way that we could do this cheaply? And he did it for nothing. He developed this film for nothing and really helped out. Was that at Metricolor? And that was at Metricolor years and years mm. and years ago. And I've never not used him. Mm. ever since. I mean, apart from a few cases when I was in America, but I've always used him. He's always been incredibly loyal. On this, on this film, for instance, there was a mistake. 
I'd done a lot of testing. I wanted to get a look um, of that period. And I had done quite a lot of testing with 200 essay film and pushed it two stops. And the scene in the bar here was the first thing we shot um, the day before the whole film started. We, we took a, a day of the prep time and used it to, to alleviate some of the problems of the schedule. So um, I shot there, very dark wooden uh, bar uh, and very dark and not very reflective in any way whatsoever. And there was enough light there. Uh, but the next, that, uh, the next uh, morning, Clive phones me up. He says, don't use this stock anymore. It really, you, it looks nice, but you have no latitude whatsoever. You won't be able to bring the blacks up at all and, and you have what you have, and you might like what you have, but if any of the, the American studios suddenly say, oh, I want it a bit brighter, it's, not, it's too dark, there's nothing you can do about it, absolutely nothing to do about it. And the next day I was doing the night sequence in the nightclub, and it was just too much bigger risk. I just said, oh. It was a look, and I think it is quite nice a look. It's very deep and very black. But I figured out a way of actually you know, creating that in the DI but still having the latitude of the film. So that's a, you know, a case, Casian point of where he saved my bacon. I could have carried on shooting for the next week like this, and then there was nothing I could have done with the footage. It, it would have looked how I wanted it to look, but if, if there was something that I wanted to change, I couldn't have changed it. And I think that's not a good idea to, to, to put yourself in that position. So he, he saved me. So he did, thanks to Clive. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. And what's your experience of grading digitally? You know, when you're in the, in the TK, um, do you tend to add, you know, you've talked a little bit about adding grads or... Yeah, I mean, this film I'm doing now, not so much adding and not doing very much for the moment. You know, this is a different look, a much more colourful look. It's 1968, so it's much more mm. technicolour, but I don't want it to be too technicolour either. I don't want it to feel real. You know, you know, it's... Mm. Uh, and you, you forget, you know, I, I shot that film nine months ago, so I sort of slightly <laughs> forgotten how I was, I was intending <laughs> for it to look. Right. But, you know, you, you get... You, you try different things and you go for the best you think for the film. Mm-hmm. And then the director comes in, has a little look, and says, oh, yeah. So a lot of the time, the directors see films that have been cutting films that have been graded through rushes, you know, at a, and looks very blue. And they're so used to it, because they've been grading it for two and you know, a half years, like that, or whatever it is, a year, six months, like that, that they want it... Like that, but it was never intended to be blue, it's just bad grading. Mm. Yes. So often you have problems like that. You, do, you have to persuade the people to, right. to make it look the way it was intended to look rather yeah. than... Uh, but no, it's a great system. Mm. It's a great system. And, you know, the more you project films in festivals, things like that, the more you realise that actually digital projection, with you get, if you get a good projector, is sensational. You know, I did this thing with Seamus McGarvey at BAFTA and it was a digital projector of The Soloist and it was sensational. I mean, it was, you know, no vibes, you know, didn't move, no scratches, no nothing. It was absolutely as he graded it. And it's, it's sensational. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that, those are the technology. Technology like uh, the DI, <laughs> like Avid, like digital projectors, I would say are the, that's a technology that I think is brilliant. I'm not a great lover of video cameras, um, because I don't think it's there, you know, I don't think it has the latitude that film has. And I don't think it's as beautiful. But I'm sure I'll be forced into, into shooting a video sooner or later. <laughs> well, I think we thoroughly, in, thoroughly yeah, enjoyed think. the film. And um, I'd just like to ask you, one, if you had some advice for students as to what, what would your advice be in terms of getting into being a cinematographer? if they wanted to? Well, I think um, um, just find the love. Find, find what you really love. Find, go and see as many photographs, go and see as many films as possible. And, and now with video, 
you can start, you know, trying things out with ca- with cameras. Take loads of photographs. See, find out about composition and just mm. see what you like and what you don't like. Because that's the most important thing is to find out what you like mm. against what you don't like. Yes, no, I think that's very. Important. I would say. Yeah. But it's tough, you know, there's, there's, there are too many people at it and not enough films. You know, I mean, I've done 34 films. I, you know, every time I finish a film, I'm, I'm waiting for the next job, you know, and it's, it doesn't come rolling in all the time. Mm. And, you know, I'm reasonably experienced. Mm. Uh, no, it's tough. It's tough. So you've got to be obsessed. You've got to love it. And get contacts. I mean, that's probably the most important thing. Get as many contacts as you can get. A lot of producers, they're good. <laughs> uh, and directors, of course. Here. Producers yeah. and directors, yeah. get teams together. And if you're people that you work together and you work really well together, stick with each other and do stuff together and just develop mm. together and mm. find new ways of doing it together. You know, that's fantastic. Mm. Yeah, you've got a whole team here, you know, <laughs> that does everything in a film. You've got all the, all the different elements. So, you know, make friends and make people and find people who, who think and, and, and work like you and want to work like you and have the same passions as you do. I would say that's the most important. Well, I'm sure lots of people have lots more questions for you. We've got some I'm drinks sure in the bar. I think okay. you find they will. Uh, we've got some drinks in the bar. So um, I would like to thank you very much, John. Much appreciated pleasure, pleasure. you coming in. And uh, thank you.